0: Picture books are considered a genre, but what's true about them is that they actually comprise as many genres as any other art form. You know, there's there's not a picture book type of story. Every type of story is a picture book story. It just needs to be applied correctly to the form.
1: That's Taylor Norman, an editor at Chronicle Books here in San Francisco and what she said is rather poignant because when you start thinking about kids books or picture books or children's books, some of the ubiquitous titles that come to mind of course are Everybody Poops, Green Eggs and Ham, or one of their newer titles Everyone's Awake. Picture books have this aura, this lure to them that everybody wants to make a children's book, or everyone thinks they can make a children's book, and and why not? When you look at the prices of $10.99, $17.99, some are even more than $20 a piece, you realize that this is a multi-million dollar industry. And if you're an illustrator, the peak of your career can be doing a children's book. And as an art student, you're going to be spending time learning how to illustrate for different audiences. This is a bit of a long episode, so grab a pen and paper. Taylor's going to give you a masterclass in what it takes to get your book published. So please enjoy. I am very, very excited about this because when we talked earlier about this, uh, like every art school grad, parent, former teacher you've probably met, grandmother person has pitched you a book Thinks they can do a children's book, has a better idea of doing a children's book. It's now your job in the next 90 minutes to explain to us how the children's book world works from an editor.
0: Yeah, great. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really excited to talk about this. It's like, it's a very small industry, but I think it's very interesting and especially relevant for all of the listeners to this podcast because. We kind of think of books as this finished product that are that they're like beautifully designed and and then you buy them, but there's a whole lot that goes into the making of them. And like you said, an editor is one of those jobs that you cannot tell people you have at a party because they will have a book for you. <laughs> really terrible. Here's my book if you're free. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't say it's amazing. like everyone has has a story, which, you know is a beautiful and also sometimes tedious thing about, <laughs> especially this country.
1: Yeah. We're going to get into that because I don't know how many yeah. copies of Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star I actually oh. need at this point.
0: Yeah. Well, we, have, we have definitely more to talk about there. So I am a children's book editor at Chronicle Books in San Francisco. I work on everything from board books, which is tiny books that are for the infants to like two years old, um, all the way up through novels for kids. Um, the bulk of what I work on are picture books which are mainly for ages like three to eight, usually kind of four to eight is the sweet spot, sweet spot. Those are generally books that are read to a child rather than the child reading them on their own. Um, and then I work on some early readers and chapter books, which is when kids are starting to read on their own and learning words. You know, Frog and Toad is a great example of that kind of category. And then I also work on novels for kids who are totally reading on their own, and that's more in the middle grade category. So those start around like age eight and up. And for, kind of for tapping people
1: out to, to understand that YA, which has become so popular yeah. in the last 10 years, that's yeah. junior high or high school?
0: Yeah, YA, we normally say is 12 and up, ages yeah. 12 okay. and up. Um, and obviously, you know, kids always read above their age level. So when you're eight, you're normally reading about 10 year olds or, you you know, if you're really advanced, you're reading um, older than that. Um, okay. The reason for that sort of distinction is more for content than for difficulty. It's about, you know, if if it's a 12 and up book, it might have romance in it. If it's a 14 and up book, it might have drugs. or Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of where YA comes in. And that's its its own sort of genre. And I'm not, I don't personally work on those as much anymore. I sort of tap out around age 12. There's plenty to go on there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But picture books, which we're going to kind of focus on a little bit, only because here at the Academy... We're in art school. So, illustrate a lot of illustrators, uh, and a lot of illustrators want to or end up going into the world of picture books. And it seems like picture books is this awesome, just golden room of I get to make beautiful things, and people just throw money at me, and my book (laughs) comes out, and there it is. But I'm guessing that's a little bit different. What, in your mind, is a picture book? What 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 do you look at it from your perspective? And then from the professional perspective, what's a picture book?
0: I'm so glad you asked that, because I think that is something that it's really hard to um, kind of understand picture books from a critical perspective for a lot of people, because Um, It's beautiful. We have such an emotional tie to the genre. We either spend a lot of time reading them with our own kids or we have these, you know, clear, precious memories of reading them with our parents when we were kids ourselves. But what we forget is that it's its own it's its own art form. It's not just text that has pictures next to it. It's actually a discrete object in which the text and the images complement each other in some way so either the images expand on the text sometimes they undermine the text that can be really funny or it can be really interesting when you're you're seeing one thing on the page but the text is telling you something else and so you have to decide is that a joke am I in on a secret that the text isn't telling me what I think it's important to remember about picture books is that they are their own they are their own art form and they're separate you know it's such a different mindset to be writing a, a story for a picture book than it is to be writing a story for even even an early reader because part of your brain as an author or if you're an illustrator part of your brain is going to be thinking what do these words that i'm putting on the paper make the illustrator draw so you're constantly sort of you are accounting for an absence on the page and that's like that's the goal if you write a story and it is totally comprehensible without pictures, then it doesn't need to be a picture book. A great picture okay, book relies right. on its images.
1: Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And like you, you're saying, it is a piece of art and and we'll go through some of the different titles and and in doing some of my own research heavily in the last three years, because I've got a three-year-old <laughs> now, you start yeah. looking at books, and, and I'm sure a lot of people do, you know, grandparents, aunts, uncles, you know, if you're stuck in a bookstore and you, you happen to wander over to the kids section, you see some books That are amazing. We have artists now like Grizz Grimley, who's now doing stuff that are now becoming movies. And we all know Dr. Seuss. And some -hmm. of us of certain ages literally grew up with reading Rainbow. Yep. And the books are are expensive. A good book is really expensive. A cheap book can be good, but a cheap book is really, really cheap. (laughs) And then we get into the thing that you talked about with text. One of the books that I found, it's a a book from 91. It's a book called Tuesday. Mm -hmm. It's a Caldecott winner, I did not realize. it's It's, a great book. It's done by David Wiesner or David Wiesner. Mm -hmm. It has three pages of text in the 28 pages of the book. Mm -hmm. And the book, the the, the illustrations are, I mean, they're movie poster level. I mean, they're stunning. I may not let my kid touch this book for a while. (laughs) But it's three pages of text. Right. I mean, part of what I think the
0: author's job is, and this happens sometimes, the author's job, and, and uh, you know, we're talking to people, some of whom are able, who are, have the gift of being able to write and illustrate for themselves, which is amazing. So they can be thinking about this component of, like, their brain is being sort of split into these two things. But people who only write picture books, part of what they're doing is having the idea for how the stories will work. So I've definitely gotten manuscripts from authors that are scripting out storyboarding basically a wordless book Um, and that happens sometimes and you'll see you know a wordless book that has an author and an illustrator and like well what did the author do Um, the author is still behind those decisions you know unless the illustrator is also the author Um, but that's that's like you know part of I think it can be really hard for people who don't do art I know a lot of people who just do um, the text and it's frustrating to not be able to do the art because you know exactly you know how the book is meant to move visually, but you don't, you don't necessarily have the capacity to do that. I also know authors who, you know, in turning in a manuscript, will turn in like little stick figure drawings of what they mean, so that they, they like kind of account for a storyboarding. Because, you know, a good picture book text, like I said, it really does rely on its images. And so there's going to be a point at which the person who's only able to do text has to throw their hands up and say, here's where this goes. And a lot of times, you know, even in a, totally normal amount of words you know in an 800 word manuscript an author is still going to have art notes that they include because they have expectations for what's going to go there and that isn't saying like this kid has blonde hair that's saying more like when he opens the box you know it can be really fun to throw to an illustrator because when he opens the you know christmas gift a surprise jumps out you don't have to say a boa constrictor jumps out you can let the illustrator decide what the surprise that jumps out is if you're only the author the divide between sort of text and images, it is a little bit blurry. And, and I think it comes down to like how the story visually is going to move. That decision is the author's, at least as far as sort of the scope of it, what happens in the details, that is up to the illustrator.
1: Okay, so that, that's, the, I think, the first part for us to really jump in to of if somebody wants to pitch a book and we're, and we're going to, we'll talk about bad pitches later and maybe a little bit now, but somebody who actually is taking this seriously is going is putting together a children's book, not just, I've got this great idea for a story. If they're coming to a publisher or they're looking to have a book, they get their book published as the author, the, the person writing the text, what are you as an editor, Looking to see and hoping to find when this manuscript comes in.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah. The first thing I look for in a manuscript, especially for a picture book, is a consideration of the art because if i have I get a lot of a lot of the submissions I get from people who are writing for the first times. they are just short stories, basically. Sometimes they'll have sort of a line or two returned every couple of sentences, and that will feel like a picture book to the person writing it. But if they haven't thought about the art at all, then it isn't a picture book. It's just a short story, you know, a, a, a kind of, you know, below a thousand words um, and a simple story usually. And that's sort of the first red flag for me. If it's sort of short, simple, doesn't think about the art at all, that feels like somebody who has an idea um, <laughs> and maybe has told this idea to their own children at bedtime several times and gotten some applause from their kids, but hasn't actually thought about, like, is this going to translate to the wider world? And how does this become not just something I can recount out loud, but a, but an actual physical object that relies on its images?
1: And, and, that, and that's a good distinction to make, I think, because as, as you're telling me that, I'm thinking, like, a, a good short story in and of itself is amazing. That's, that's hard to do really hard uh, to do yeah and, totally and you know you know blog, a blog post is 500 words but you know that doesn't mean anything but uh, you know if you've ever read a short story you're like wow that's a that's 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 a difficult feat um yeah. and then like you were saying that a kids or a children's book or a picture book is 800 words or less sometimes mm-hmm. far less it seems like um you really have is it is it being a wordsmith or is it being is it more about the text on the page and if you've answered this, it's it's I'm, I'm just going to keep asking because it it's, it's hard for yeah, me to yeah. clarify. Is it more about the actual words, the actual text on the page, or does it come into the whole concept of that book?
0: It's more to me about the whole concept because the words, you know, words can be edited to work for the concept. But if the if the overall sort of vision doesn't account for something visual, um, then it's sort of a misunderstanding of the art form, really. Like, it, it needs to be visual. It needs to rely on the illustrations in some way. It's not decorative text, right? It's not like an old Bible that has kind of art pieces throughout. It's it's something—it's It's a it's a whole product. And the other thing that, like, I think is really important about picture books is, like I said at the beginning— most of them are read out loud. So if somebody hasn't thought about what that's gonna be like to read this text out loud, and you know that can there's a whole category of of things you're looking for when you're reading out loud, but an understanding of the way the book is actually going to function is important to, to the success of the project overall. And, you know, there are books that can be read aloud that are very sweet, intimate stories and are read between a parent and a child. There's big bombastic stories that are perfect, like Boom Chicka Boom Boom, like that, or Chicka Chicka Boom Boom. That is a perfect classroom read, like, because you can get audience participation, you can get your kids involved there's many different definitions of what a successful read aloud is. But like, if you don't get that about the book, then you kind of don't know what you're writing with a picture book. Then you're sort of just like, want to be published is kind of my <laughs> takeaway. Right. And,
1: and, and we'll talk about self-publishing later. Too. Sure. So I want to get yeah. into self-publishing yeah. a little bit if we can. But what are some of those, those genres then for, for people to think about? You said read aloud. You had a more intimate, you know, mother, son, father, daughter. I'm going to, you're going to sit in my lap. It's bedtime, you know, like a good night moon. Sure. Yeah. Or a good night construction site where it's like, you know, this is our winding down for the Mm -hmm. day type Mm -hmm. story. What are some of those different genres or, or, or subject areas?
0: Yeah. So let's see, like, I think when I think about read aloud books, there's sort of, there's a, there's one, like I said, that's great for a classroom read, um, you can t- think about different audience participation levels that you can achieve through the course of your book. So if you have sort of a, you know, a page turn that relies on you saying, like, should he go through that door? And all the kids go, no! Like, that's a really great tool for sort of moving a plot along. Um, uh, you know, of course, goodnight books are probably the most common books
1: <laughs>
0: in the industry. Yeah, there's so many
1: twinkle twinkle books. <laughs> there's so
0: many twinkle twinkle And there's so many, I mean... Those and ABC books are probably the most common submissions I see because everybody's sort of like, well, don't we need an ABC of robots? And like it's all been done before. But what I assume with good night books is that like, you know, you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of nights with your kids and they're going to be in different moods every night and they might need something slightly different to go to sleep every night. So, you know, it is a sort of glutted part of the industry, but I think it's sort of a necessary part of the industry. But then there's sort of a separate, you know, not so much goodnight books, but sort of sweet books. So I think of like I Love You Forever or Guess How Much I Love You and that sort of very, you know, parent and child or grandparent and child meaningful moment books. Those are a a huge component of the industry. There's kind of funny books, which we would probably, you know, categorize as books that you wouldn't want to read before you go to bed because they're really kind of raucous and they get your kids kind of energized. And maybe there's an adventure or like kind of, you know, fantastical things happen in there. I mean, that's the crazy thing is like picture books are considered a genre, but what's true about them is that they actually comprise as many genres as any other art form. You know, there's, there's not a picture book type of story. Every type of story is a picture book story. It just needs to be applied correctly to the form.
1: That's really interesting. It's going to, we're going to have a lot of times where I say in this conversation, duh, that makes sense. But <laughs> duh, it does make sense where it's kind of like before I had a kid or before I was really hanging around with very small children, I was like, well, this, the artwork has to be good and I've got really good wordsmith ability. So this book is amazing. <laughs> But now it's like, well, I have nap time. I have bath time. I have I'm tired of you watching television time. You all by yourself, little child picked up a book and want to read it. So I have to let you do that because that's (laughs) important. And then good night time. And it does seem like my son really likes the Little Blue Truck series. Oh, yeah. So there's different versions. Stories about Little Blue Truck. Issues, better. yeah. Stories yep, or different, yeah. uh, the sequel, prequel, and, and origin stories totally. of Little Blue Truck. Uh, it's like, okay, that does make sense that these books are not, you don't have one book. Right. You know, fortunately, we don't have one book for all <laughs> yeah. seasons.
0: I think as a parent, you want the right book for the right moment at all of your moments. And so there's a lot of, high drama or low drama moments in a kid's life. And ideally, you know, the picture books that get published address those types of moments in a kid's life. Um, but yeah, it, it, I mean, it should, it's just like, it's just like novels. Like sometimes when you know, a beach read is a certain type of mood and a mystery is a certain type of mood. And, and those are all different par- parts of your life. And kids have a lot of different, you know, parts of their life too, even though it feels from the adult's perspective, like they don't like, you know, as a dad, like there's, you know, tons of melodrama in one day, and there should be a book for each of those moments.
1: And then a dinosaur book is all he wants to see for a week.: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, how exactly. many dinosaur books do I possibly need?: <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we rely on you needing a lot of them so exactly. <laughs> and it's it's,
1: it's funny how, how how often he'll like a dinosaur book really? Dinosaurs, construction <laughs> trains. Uh, yep. It's like, you know, just very boy type things. That's so uh, funny. But then he does like Twinkle Twinkle. So I can't, uh, Twinkle awesome. Twinkle Little Star. I can't, we'll never stop that. Um, but still staying in that author standpoint, um, yep. when an author comes to you and they're, they're, they've cornered you at a party and they're being very nice and very uh, open to critique and advice, what would you tell them to start thinking about? about their pitch and about their book? Mm -hmm. What are the things they Mm -hmm. need to do before they really send in a manuscript that gets stuck in a pile for later?
0: Yeah. The first thing I say to do is, honestly, the most fun step. The first thing that's really important for any aspiring author or illustrator to do is to go read as many picture books as they can get their hands on or whatever genre they're working in they just need to immerse themselves in the field because they're coming into an industry where we all know like all the books that have been published in the last you know 10 years especially maybe 20 and then there's obviously many many more before that that we all have kind of at our mental you know fingertips right away so
1: for sure yeah
0: the classics for sure but like the last 10 years are pretty well known to anybody you're going to be talking to. So if you're like, hey, I have a great idea for, you know, a book about a sloth, we can say, well, you know, that's great. But Sparky was, is kind of the go-to book about sloths right now. So maybe something else. And I think it's just good. You know, it's kind of like in any industry other than creative industries, you got to do a lot of work before you make your first attempt at being an, you know, a professional member of that industry. And it's only with something creative like, you know illustration or or art overall or music that you can kind of, you know, because there are tons of success stories, you can kind of tell yourself, well, I'm really good at art. So this is going to be amazing the first time I try it. But the reality is, ideally, you really care about the art form as more than just a means to being published. And so when you set out to go be published, you want to know what that industry is actually made of. So the first thing I usually say to do is like go sit down in a in a bookstore or a library and just read as many books as you can for hours and for multiple days and really look at what's working. The books that hit you really hard, why do they hit you so hard? So I know we're going to talk about page turns and sort of the design of the picture book a little bit, but the fun part about becoming part of this industry is not just reading to kids, which is also a really instructive part of learning how to write good picture books, but just looking at the books as a crit- like critically as an art form because they really are. And so becoming sort of immersed in what's out there right now will not only show you what your competition is and what you're up against so that if you think you have a great ABC dinosaur book, you'll see there are tons already that don't need your <laughs> inclusion.
1: there's there's not many spins on that on that genre. No. Right now.
0: No, no, no. And then there's, it's hard to get a new take on ABC Dinosaurs. We haven't really found enough new dinosaurs to, <laughs> to do that. But right. the other thing you get is like you learn a lot about the form. So you'll become a better picture bookmaker even as you're educating yourself about what your competition is. That's a really key part.
1: What are some of those bad book ideas that you hear a lot? And when I say bad, I mean bad for the time. They could have been good 20 years ago. In 20 years from now, they might be amazing. But what sure. are some of those... Obvious to you, but not obvious to a first timer, second, third timer, that, that you want to look at people and go, stop, just don't do this anymore. It, it's, it's not going to happen.
0: Right. I think ABC books, alphabet books of any kind are really tricky to make work. There has been an ABC book for just about every concept and every, you know, theme Art form, idea, there's been an alphabet book for. So I, I would be really hard-pressed to make me publish an alphabet book. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And and then the ones, you know, they're just publishing, you're kind of publishing into a black hole there. So that, I think a book that, that was just a sweet goodnight book that didn't have anything new to necessarily contribute about going to sleep, I see a lot of those. Right now, I mean, this is a good thing, but right now I'm seeing a lot of sort of, empowering, you know, kind of nonfiction, empowering books, kind of in the model of like Goodnight Rebel Girls sort of anthology series that are meant to inspire. And I think, you know, the motivation behind doing that is really wonderful. But to do it just out of a motivation to empower doesn't give you much of a very authentic or Felt story, so some of those can feel like they're just trying to capitalize on on the moment rather than actually, you know, say something true.
1: Do you get a lot of uh, pitches for somebody trying to create their own version of a character, not even something of existing IP, but like I've created the coolest character ever. Yes, you're going to absolutely,
0: absolutely, and that happens. (laughs) That comes a lot from people, in my experience, who. Yeah, they either see sort of the franchise character as like, oh, I can think of a name. I can think of an animal. Let's go make that character go to school and, and you know, have a sick day. And basically Berenstein bears it for, you know, whatever right. their character right. is.
1: Yeah. I'm really good at drawing foxes. So it's going to be fox goes yeah. to the store, fox changes attire.
0: Exactly. And it's surprising, like, I'm sure you're having this experience as a dad. It's surprising how hard it is to make a character who basically just exists for issues to exist around. It's like Franklin the Turtle. is kind of just there to, like, you know, get kids to act out, going to school, being sick, having a birthday. Like, those are all kind of classic themes. And the character, you know, doesn't have much actual character other than just, like, his existence. But it's hard to actually make that. That's actually a really... Like Little Blue Truck, for example, like that's actually a really amazing it has to you have to have a core of something real for that to work. It can't just be just a cute animal. I see a lot of um, stories that we'll talk about the slush pile, which which is where all the manuscripts without agents come for a publisher. And a lot of things we see in there come from mostly older People who have experimented with this story on their grandkids or their kids, and there's a character that they might make up bedtime stories about. I see so many characters about whom bedtime stories already exist, and they're like, My kids love this story, and which is so awesome. But the question always has to be Your kids love the story, your grandkids love the story, but does it need to be published, or is this just like a really sweet thing that you get to share with your family? And that's sort of the answer, is usually the latter. In that circumstance.
1: That comes into the money conversation, which we'll uh-huh. definitely talk about because that, sure. that's, that's a bigger one. So yeah. that's a little bit of the author. Mm-hmm. Now you as the editor, is it your job to find the illustrator or do you have people, illustrators coming to you to pitch going, Hey, I can make beautiful art. Give me some words. How does it work from the visual side?
0: So the illustrator component is one of my favorite parts of my job. That is, unless the person is author, illustrator, both, that is the job of the publisher. And generally, it's, it comes down to, at least at Chronicle Books, it kind of has different iterations at different publishing houses. But at Chronicle, the decision is, is between the editor and the designer of the book. And it's really important to us to make sure that the author is always you know, overjoyed with their choice of illustrator too. So there are always, you know, nightmare stories of authors who got assigned some illustrator that they hate. We (laughs) never do that. (laughs) It's always, it's always better to have everybody love the book because then everybody wants to promote the book and they want to go out and tour and talk about it. So that choosing an illustrator is one of the most fun jobs, parts of my job for sure, because, you know, and like you said, they can come from many different ways. So Sometimes, you know, there's definitely a list of illustrators I have just mentally and on my computer and in all kinds of places of illustrators I'm dying to work with. People I really want to sign up for books, but I'm waiting for, you know, just the right manuscript to pair with them. Or I'm waiting for their schedule to clear up because they're, you know, not taking on projects currently.
1: Where do you personally find them?
0: You know, the place I find them most is the same place I send everybody else. I'm watching books that come out. Most of my favorite illustrators, I see their work on another picture book and I think, oh, my gosh, this captures, you know, this emotion so perfectly. Or look at these facial expressions like I've never seen somebody do that. So I'm I when I'm reading picture books now, like I'm constantly tracking the illustrator and, you know, and the author, too, of course, looking at how those books work. But if it's an illustrator I really like, I sort of mentally put them on my list. So that's one way. Instagram is another great place to see people's work.
1: It really is Instagram. I, I've been hearing oh, that yeah. more and more, and it's, Man, it's that social it's so media so great. thing where we're like, does it really happen? Or But you're it's telling so me yes. It's so stupid,
0: you know? But yes, it absolutely does. And one thing I love about Instagram, too, is even even people who I'm currently working with, you know, there's not this pressure. So most illustrators will have an Instagram and also a portfolio on their website. And the difference between their portfolio and their Instagram can sometimes be considerable so that I'll go on their portfolio and say man, I don't know, this all looks like they'll they'll have been creative for a client or they'll be following some prompt or they'll be, you know, following a theme and you won't see a lot of inspiration. But then when you go over to their Instagram and you see their sketches or something that they just jotted down when they're on the subway, that's where you see their real artistic self um, really come out. So following people on Instagram is a great way to to learn how they actually do art. You also might find, you know, some of the illustrators that I see in books and I think, Nah, like they're not doing anything interesting. I don't need to. I don't I won't put them on my mental list. I look at their Instagram and I say like, or I see they actually can do portraits really well. But we don't you know, you don't always know what their sort of publication history has been. They might have been art directed a very specific way for their entire publishing career. And what you get to see on Instagram Or, you know, if they have sketches on their portfolio on their website, you get to see how they actually want to make art. So it's a really fun thing to find an illustrator who's been published in a really commercial, generic way and say, hey, we want you to set yourself free and just do what you've been doing in basically your art books and do that for us because we really like your line. We don't like your, you know, more sort of commercial sensibility, Mm. but we want you to go follow your instincts.
1: We don't like we don't particularly like that client that much. either we get it. Yeah. You got to pay rent. However, totally. Yep. However, <laughs> well, that, that's really actually like great yeah. to hear that you as somebody who's being part of this commissioning process, I mean, that, that gives, you know, an old guy like me going, Oh, well, maybe my work <laughs> is still viable where you're actually going out and searching it. Because I think that's the hard part, you know, just to mention the student body at, at this point, you know, so much of what you do is you know, first five years, of your career is what somebody paid you to do because you're too busy. Yeah. Looking for work. Not I don't have time to be creative on my own. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And I know that can be the, the good thing is, you know, when when we're choosing an illustrator, we're scouring any work we can find of theirs. Really? That's online. Oh, yeah. Wow. So I would never sign somebody up because I saw one piece like okay. I if I am if they're on my list at all. I've gone and looked at their whole whatever they're whatever I can find. Um, and so I know at that point. You know, I don't know their publishing history, but I can see that they have several different styles, maybe, or we might want to steer them in one direction. So it, it's a pretty – it's like a pretty holistic acquisition process.
1: Wow, that's that's a lot of work for <laughs> – I mean, it's something. really
0: fun work, though, too. Yeah, sure. It is like – you're basically matchmaking. You're trying to yeah. find – art that matches the book. And, and, you know, especially like I'm working on a book right now that we just are finalizing the illustrator for, but it's a chapter book. So it's, it's a little different than a picture book because it isn't, the text does not rely on the illustrations. They are going to be decorative and they should expand the story, but they're not going to contradict it in any way because that wouldn't serve the story. Um, But that was a really long illustrator process because we had lots of people who were, all oh, great, but so different. And and that's sort of something that you're deciding this early on is like, well, there's many different avenues any book can go down. And and so you are, you are sort of starting down a path as soon as you choose the illustrator, even if you know that person has a wide range and you can direct them within that range. But that's only, you know, Instagram and known illustrators are one component. There are illustration agencies that only, like, you know, most agencies have you know, they have clients that are authors and illustrators, maybe poets, whatever. Um, but some illustration agencies are just there to basically do, you know, they're, they're there to, to take commission work. Um, and those are, I think, sometimes when you're first starting out as a student, you are often signing up with an illustration agency who can kind of rep you until you get a book deal. And then you might not be doing as many editorial projects, but you are maybe if, if your goal is to illustrate picture books, for for example, then you and, might be going over. more
1: And is there. that illustrate those illustration agents? Those seem relatively new.
0: They are. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, well, I, mean, I shouldn't say I was that. In school, with Such it authority. Was not a
1: thing. Yeah, I and, think
0: in my experience, they are relatively new. Um, they, you know, there, there are, there's, there. There's an agent for every creator. And I think as children's books has become such a lucrative industry, the agency field has mm. sprung up around it. And so it's become clear that, like, having sort of a, a way station of, of illustrators is a great thing to do for an agent. And, of course, agents take some commission from those projects, too. Right, um, that's that weird I'm, conversation. I'm largely <laughs> pro-agent, by the way, right, but you yeah. do need to know what you're getting into going sure. into it. Um, and and the the illustration agents. Um, I think they're sort of, they can be like somewhat of a stepping stone for the artist. But I mean, I work with those agents often because mm-hmm. there are different projects that have different needs. And if you need something, you know, if, if we're doing a, a set of playing cards and you just want illustrations, it, it isn't always going to be in your best interest as a publisher to go sign up somebody who's super expensive from a major agent. You are going to look for somebody who can kind of achieve what you're going for from an illustration agency. Um, and then the other last place I look is like I try to, you know, Pre-COVID times, obviously, trying to go to the art shows in the city um, okay. and see new work um, from kids at CAA or or whatever. Um, those are and our designers all go to those too. Um, so that's like a totally valid place to show off work too.
1: So so it really is, you know, the illustrator has to be out there hustling every which way but loose to get yeah. seen.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's no. It's so tempting, I think, probably to to just stick with your projects and sort of do, you know, whatever you're most inspired to do. But it's if you just think about the the amount of art that there is out there that any editor or designer is gonna have to wade through anyway, you know, it's just a good idea to put yourself out there as much as possible. And the good that is like, you know, I hate to go back to Instagram, but that is the good thing about Instagram is it's very easy to just like throw up your pieces sure, once sure. a week or whatever and just, you know the more sort of connections you can make. I, I think the other cool thing about children's books, as as frustrating as it can sometimes be, is it is a very small world of an industry. It's, mm-hmm. it's like, narrow but very deep. So it's worth making those connections. It's worth staying in touch with, you know, you're visiting speakers or whatever, and, and anyone you can meet in this world probably knows somebody else in this world. It's a very okay. networked community. Um, and it's also, like, you know... It's not, no one is going to get rich off of being a children's book editor. <laughs> so you, the cool thing about this job is that everybody, especially on the West Coast, like that's the cool thing about everyone being out here. It's not easy to find a job in publishing on the West Coast right. because most of it's all in the East Coast, most of York. it's in New York. Yeah. Yep. and And oh. that's kind of the cool thing about the industry in this specific location because everyone who's doing it is necessarily going to be super passionate about it because if there was an easier way to, or if there was a more lucrative way to, you know, be in the children's book industry, anybody would be doing it, but everybody just really wants to be here. (laughs)
1: Well, That's that's good. That's good for us over here then. Um, (laughs) so now, now comes that part where you've got your writer, you've got your illustrator. Now you as an editor, what are, you know, what are you doing? What's your job at this point?
0: Yeah. So now let's see. It's so funny because we work so far out in the future that any, I
1: mean, we're talking a year, two years,
0: two years, three years. I mean, the books that I'm signing up right now will be coming out in fall 2023 and we're talking in, in October of 2020. (laughs) Yeah. So because what you're, what you're sort of getting ready is you are finding an illustrator. Once you have an illustrator, um, you know, and while you're finding an illustrator, you're still editing the manuscript. So you're sort of doing two things at once. Um, you then, the illustrator is going to work on sketches. The illustrator might have several projects that they have to work on before they get to this project. Like, many people are booked almost always. And so even if you find somebody who's like, great, I can make time for this, they're not just going to jump on it right away. Um, so that's sort of a waiting game. Um, as they are sketching, um, I'm looking at new acquisitions and, and finding those books. I'm editing those novels, for example. Um, and then books that are coming out now, I am sort of, you know, in, in a normal time, I'd be going to conferences and to librarian, you know, panels to talk about these books. We're pitching upcoming seasons. It's funny because, like, very few of my hours at the office are usually spent actually editing. Most of it is kind of managing titles and moving things from one bucket to another bucket um and keeping everything on track because the other job of an editor is just basically being the book's manager um, okay, okay you're sort of responsible for for everything in the book so you're, and you're not you're
1: not there correcting misspell misspelled no words.
0: no no that like that's a very sort of end stage um of the manuscript and it's a pretty small part of the job mm-hmm. mostly the the editing you know the and and that's kind of a i'm glad you brought that up because it's a funny distinction of the job. The job of an editor is really to shape the story to say this character isn't coming through or you think this joke is funny, but I'm not laughing or Mm. this line. When I read it aloud, I always trip up on the syllable. It's really about shaping the book. It's not about. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. When I was a kid, like thinking of being an editor, I thought that all you did was like correct typos. And that's actually a copy editor's job. My job is really more sort of big picture shaping. um, I mean, that's not to say it's not at the nitty gritty, but it's not. My job is more subjective and a copy editor's job is objective.
1: Mm, got it. Well, that, that, yeah. that makes sense. Cause I know that is a mystery term. I know there's a lot yeah. of terms. I mean, if you look at the film industry, a film editor is putting yes. things together, but they're really crafting a story. Totally. That's so funny that you bring,
0: I was just going to bring film up because a film editor is really like, that's a good thing for people to think of with an editor. It's, it's the editor who's basically compiling the shots. Mm -hmm. Um, of the book rather than, you know, the person going in to fix the continuity between the shots. That's sort of the copy editor's
1: job. Yeah. A lot of the illustrators we've talked to have said that's like, yeah, I'm making a movie in 48 frames. Yep. That's it.
0: That's a, yep. That's a really helpful way to think about it. And I I have found that, um, you know, younger people who are really adept at making videos online have a innate sense of how picture books work because you are, interesting. Yeah, you are kind of compiling, you know, you're going between your zoomed out shots and zooming in and panning in on a face. And sure. so those things can really help the way you construct. And a lot of our, you know, best um, or at least most well known illustrators have some experience in animation at some point. You know, John Clausen is a big name. Mm-hmm. Um, he spent his time illustrating, I mean, animating. And yeah, a lot, that's like a really helpful sort of. Um, Subtextual well, schedule. It's
1: interesting when you see these videos, the read the the books read aloud on YouTube. It's like three and a half minutes. It's like, yeah, that's a you you got to do a lot in three and a half minutes. That's yeah, you know, totally. It's, it's totally. a huge amount of time. I mean, even when I read a, a story to my kid, it's like, that's well, five minutes, buddy. How come you're not asleep? I mean, yeah, that, that's totally. what the goal was, buddy. Go to sleep. Now. I know, <laughs>
0: I know. And if you and that's kind of a funny, like you know, part of the illustrator's job is to think about how much time you want your reader to be spending on each of those pages mm. one of the things i'm sure you found in just like the older books we are talking about um they used to be i mean this is totally generalizing but older books used to have a lot more words per page and sure. and more word higher word count overall um that fancier was fancier words that, too
1: a little a yeah. higher a higher level of english for sure
0: yeah which i mean doesn't speak so highly of our educational <laughs> system because when you figure it's the parents reading either way right a lot um, of
1: multisyllabic words
0: yeah, totally. But one thing that I find really hard when I'm reading aloud to kids is when you have a spread, so you're kind of showing off your book, um, and you have the book open with a spread, and it's just a big old text block that's takes up, you know, a full minute to read out loud, and the kid reading that you're reading to has one thing to look at. That can be a really challenging situation for a parent or a teacher to read in. So we think a lot about how much time you're spending with that book open in front of a kid on each page, I did a book a couple years ago that was 112 pages. Um, for it was a picture book, um, and it was for you know ages four to eight. But what we were really careful to do is called Her Right Foot, and it's written by Dave Eggers, illustrated by Sean Harris. And we were really careful to have basically one sentence per spread, so that even though it's 112 pages, it reads really quickly, and there's right. something new to look at almost every you know ten. To 15 seconds or so. Uh, and that's just like it's thinking about your audience um, and how the book, again, like actually functions as an object is so crucial.
1: And that that's, is that all your decision? Or do you hope that the, the, the idea of page turns, the idea of how this book will function? Is that your sole responsibility? Or is that as a, a writer and illustrator are advancing in the industry they're starting to learn that or is that your constant cross to bear
0: <laughs> that is you know it is everyone who works on the book's job um okay. and when you work with somebody who who knows how to put a book together it's amazing because they know the pacing they know exactly to take that same book as an example Sean Harris who illustrated it his sketches his change from the sketches to the final art there were i think three minute changes in 112 pages because he had such an excellent sense of exactly how the book was supposed to be paced and exactly where you're reading, how you, how your read aloud would work, how the emotions should build across the book. And when you work with somebody who has an innate sense like that, it's like, I mean, it is just so life-changing. But aside from those genius people, there's no perfect science to picture books. That's what one thing that I really love about them. Um, and so when I'm reading it, I am looking for how is this pacing working? How does this page turn function? Where are my eyes going when I land on this page? Are they accidentally going to the second sentence that you're supposed to read? Those are Mm -hmm. things that I look at constantly. But they're also things that the designer is looking at, that the copy editor is looking at, everyone who reads it in the make team, what we call it. Mm -hmm. Um, The author, too. Like if the author and illustrator are separate, sometimes they'll say like, hey, you know, I'm really having a hard time reading this font, for example, I, I don't like it doesn't support the tone of the book. Everyone right. who's reading it is coming to it from their own sort of level of expertise. Um, and everybody's relevant because a good picture book should be able to be read by anybody. I'm the editor, but, but I don't know how it's going to work with A classroom of kids, for example. So anyone in the sort of creative process of the book is going to be reading it critically, um, bringing to it their own perspective. And all of those people are equally key. uh, In an ideal world, like every (laughs) book would be able to be read out loud to like, Thirty test classes of kids like that would be so awesome if I could figure out how to do that because <laughs> because like we also in the industry you know you get so you hear a lot like kids hate this girls like that boys right. hate this which is yeah. so like it's absurd because kids are as different as adults are
1: <laughs> okay. It's also the parents are tired of it. I there's yeah. books I hate. I'm like I am I I'm I'm, totally. I'm not throwing a book away because that's sacrilegious. <laughs> but I'm giving this book away very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and totally. then there's some books that I'm like. If you love this book, buddy, I will read it to you because it it makes you happy. I mean, a perfect example, I think, is um, uh, Eric Carls. Very caterpillar. Hungry Caterpillar. Very Hungry Caterpillar. Yeah. And it's like, you look at it from an art perspective, like, all right, it's it, very good design. I get it. You you did something very special. And then as you do read it, you're like, we've got through a pace. There's a lot of interaction. Now we've got an ending and you're done. Wow. You really pulled that off. I, I could not make my version of that without right. totally screwing it up, and 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 right. that's a big thing. What's funny about
0: about some of those classic books um, is, I think some people. Eric Carle is a great example. Margaret Wise Brown, who does Goodnight Moon, is another great example. Taro Gomi. I don't know if you. Guys have those books. Um, he's a Japanese author illustrator. Mm-hmm. He does a book called Spring Is Here. He does a book called Bus Stops, My Friends. Um, he did the book Everyone Poops. Um, oh, okay. okay. He, like, I put those people in a category of being on some level of understanding what a kid needs that goes beyond what we're able to sort of comprehend <laughs> as parents or as creators. But when you read them with a kid, they work. And you might read them yeah. as an adult and see, like, what is going on here? Like, it doesn't make any sense, or this isn't effective, or it's too short, or what happens? Why am I paying eight ninety five read...
1: for this book? Sure, Why? exactly.
0: Yes, exactly. But then when you read them with a kid and they and they work, it's sort of this miraculous thing, you know? <laughs> Best eight ninety five
1: I ever spent. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: I mean, it's sort of the like the idea that like philosophers are children too, because they're able to get at this. You know, children and philosophers are able to get at this sort of same level of simplicity mm-hmm. and understanding of the universe. There's some degree of that in, in picture book creators, too, I think. The ones that have really lasted through the, through the many decades that they've been published. There's something more to them than just like, oh, it's popular, so we'll keep buying it. Hey,
1: everybody. I'm going to jump in here around the midpoint and just give you a break, a chance to pause and take a minute and digest everything that Taylor is telling you. And of course, let you know that if you are interested in finding out more about an art education, please RSVP today at academyart.edu slash podcast to learn more about our upcoming interactive online open house, where we have over 40 plus areas of art and design programs, admissions information, financial aid information, campus life, and more. So here we are back to Taylor and the world of children's books. Like everybody, I got a box of books from somebody and they were probably remainder <laughs> books or books from an old library sale or something like that. And, um, you know, one book called Tuesday from the, from 1991 is beautiful. It's yep. gorgeous. Another book, not so nice, yep. not really interesting. I, don't, I would not buy it. I wouldn't have bought it in, in 1985. <laughs> I don't think I would buy it now. Um, but that comes up to this concept of uh art is good writing is good and we're making kids feel happy but i really have rent to pay and i want to make a lot of money and this is a company and i got to pay taxes mm-hmm. what does a book deal look like from the writer illustrator perspective and what does that deal encompass but yeah. you know w- when we think about you know everybody's heard harry potter and we're talking millions upon billions of dollars sure. um when i was doing research on this um, we're now hearing authors manuscripts going to auction, which in mm-hmm. my mind means lots of dollar signs when I hear yeah. auctions 20 years ago, when I was in school and people were talking about this, it was like, you know, you know, work for hire 200 bucks a page. Right. If you're lucky, right. you know, you bang it out in a couple <laughs> weeks, you move on now it's editorial. And then yeah. the word that, that the changing of the letters, it seems only from editorial to published is like what just happened huge yes what's going huge on house. how does that money change sure
0: so i mean and there's there's kind of little examples on both sides where you'll hear about somebody who only got paid whose work for hire basically and then the book made a ton of money but they didn't see any of it because they just got paid a flat fee which is sort of the nightmare from an illustrator's perspective but at the same time i think the hope in doing work for hire illustration is that you get seen, you get attached to something huge, and it takes off. Like, that's kind of the, the gamble that you're making. Um, so there's so many different, you know, types of deal structures and expectations attached to advances um, in children's books. And it can be anything from, you know, you know we have some projects that are work-for-hire authors, too, if you just want to sort of attach a text to something. Um, but Yeah, I you think, mentioned,
1: like, you know, playing cards. And that, that seems yeah, very much like a work-for-hire totally. Thing, Absolutely, or
0: some, and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes like with something like that, we might even give a couple hundred dollars to whoever the editor is in-house if they're spending their own time on it. You know, if they're like the author. Um, but in general, I think you can trace back the sort of huge advances that we now see regularly in children's books. I think you can trace that back to Harry Potter because Harry Potter was something that really redefined what would be accomplished or could be accomplished by a children's book. It revitalized the industry. It turned it into this thing that was like, oh, my gosh, there's so much money to be made here, you know, not just for J.K. Rowling, but for the entire enterprise. There's movies. There's, you know, and 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 that was a whole new part of the industry when it started there was not such thing as a midnight book release party before harry potter existed (laughs) you know and now that's something that happens for wimpy kid it's something that happens for dog man like that is a it's sort of a, a reliable part of the industry now but that all comes from harry potter um and what also happened with that was this sort of a realization from everyone every perspective of the industry agents authors editors publishing houses, everybody was sort of like, oh my God, there's so much money to be made here. You know, we want to have the next Harry Potter. And you did see a few years after that where there were more series that had a sort of similar level of like intense fervor. So there's series of unfortunate events. There was Twilight, Hunger Games. These were all as different as they are from Harry Potter. They followed the same model of this like, you know, rabid This is not cinematic excitement.
1: enough and I don't see a 16 episode television right. show out of this. So right. fix it.
0: Right, right, but also just this sort of idea that that like you could get kids this excited about books, which was like, holy shit, we got to do this for I, 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 shocking. you know, yeah, shocking uh, yeah. and really shocking. cool, like yeah. really cool, yeah, and, and and like something that I think is still like a really cool part of the industry. Um, yeah, cause and, I'm trying to
1: think like, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I like, no, no, we no. Were, when you, we talked about this and yeah. I've got two nephews that are big into it and they've got first editions and, and, you know, it's easy for the, to you know, Christmas I'm like, uh, go find some expensive Harry Potter thing and get it on. Totally.
0: Yeah. Um, but I'm like, <laughs> something I leather trying bound.
1: Th- right. Uh, but I was trying <laughs> to think like when I was, a, when I was a kid, I'm 42, like what was, what were those books? I mean, choose your own adventures were yeah. something that fifth grade through junior high was, are you know, literary crack?
0: Yeah, that's it. The I can't thing think of so, anything. like, when I was a kid, I was super into Babysitter's Club, right. and there okay. were I think around 150 and Sweet of Valley those. High. Sweet have Valley High was like a little, a little before my time, so like <laughs> <Okay>.
1: <laughs> a little advanced for me. Sorry, I have to go get um, my crutches in I, my <laughs> walker. So I apologize. No, yeah,
0: I mean, like, Animorphs, Goosebumps, like, there yeah, were Goosebumps, series, yeah. but I think what you're getting at is that before Harry Potter, books were you know, popular books were tailored more to the individual reader and Harry Potter was for everyone. So Harry Potter was this democratizing moment and it continues like that's what's kind of it's like the Eric Carle books like it continues to be this thing that despite now they've been out for 20 years or so. They continue to be this thing that, like, unites everybody. And there are, you know, the series, some of the series that followed in their wake continue to do that. But I think one of the, the magical things, so to speak, about Harry Potter is, like, it was before kids were on the Internet so much. Um, and obviously we're still, like, somewhat on the Internet, but there wasn't social media for kids in the way that there is now. And since that, since social media has risen, um, especially for kids... It's been, you know, it's the same as has happened in the culture overall. Like, it's harder to find the uniting chapter book or or YA book that, that like, comprises or that captures all audiences in the way that something like Harry Potter or Hunger Games did at the time. Because everybody's attention is just more, you know, it's diverted to many different directions. And they are more driven to things that are their specific thing again. It's sort of like we had this weird moment um, post, you know. Encyclopedia Brown Babysitter Club time where everything was sort of just for the kid themselves. We had this moment where we all were united in liking certain books, not every book, but certain books. And now we're sort of back to like, there's a book for every reader and you are just going to find the niche examples of what you like to read. I think children's books are solid because we will always have new kids. We always need to buy them new books. So that's just, it's it's a really reliable part of the industry.
1: <laughs> and, and it's it's funny you say buy, because this is this is something that as a parent... Oh, God. <laughs> when you go start to buy, I mean, I got to yeah. pay you money. It becomes a very strange world. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I I have worked. I I've had a couple of books published. Uh, I worked, I wor- lived overseas. Uh, I was hired because I was an English speaker. And I think my mom, me, and the editor read those books. And they were worth <laughs> the hire. And that is oh. where my, the quality of my writing has ended. Um, <laughs> and who who buys these books I mean yeah. if you're trying to run a business or you know where your deal comes in where your payment as the artist and the and the and the author comes in um since everybody's mm-hmm. got to make money who's actually buying books we can't I, I'm I'm assuming it's not if it's not on Amazon and it's not at Costco and Walmart you're screwed or is right
0: it? right one of the funny things about children's books as as like who buys them because obviously when you're a parent part of what you're apprehensive about when you're spending basically $20 on a brand new book is like, you might get a home, your kid reads it once and doesn't like it. And then that's it. You know, and of course, there are the ones that they read over and over again, or they may, maybe they'll discover it later. And there's always hope. But you are hoping that it becomes sort of this intrinsic part of your household routine that's a big gamble to put twenty dollars on really like especially if you have an opinionated kid or a kid with specific likes like you know kids have tons of opinions and they're not going to just sit there or you got one kid and
1: you're a little older and you're spoiling the garbage out of him and you're like you should have a book every week little guy oh my god that's what you're supposed to do i want you to be a a well-rounded individual here's another book read it Read it right,
0: right. I spent twenty dollars. Yeah, you don't want to be you don't want to be pressuring your kid to read books uh, that they don't want to read. So one of the things that is a huge um, component of the industry, because you also look at the bestseller list and you're like, how in God's name is Goodnight Goodnight Construction Site still on the bestseller list after you know over ten years on there, or maybe okay, we're coming up on ten years, but like. So where are the – it's not the same parents buying those over and over again. What happens and what's a really important part of the money that we count on for all these books are books as gifts. Any any parent who is giving a friend's kid a gift, any grandparent who's giving their kids a gift – Anyone going to a baby shower? These are all moments. Like books are a really useful gift to give. And so the sort of books bought for somebody else is a big part of how the money gets spent on these books. And that's why you look at something like, and I and and you're like, well, great. Everybody, their kid loved it. Your kid loves it. You bought it for your three friends, all of whom had boys in the same year. And that's sort of a really checkmark, easy gift to give. Um, because the other cool thing about books as a, as a gift is like they're they're nice, you know, they are twenty dollars and they look, beautiful as objects and they are they come with the value of like you know this test of time and reading it together so they aren't you know it's not 20 gift card it's a 20 thoughtful thing that you're giving to somebody um and yeah we definitely rely on that we talk a lot about books that are like great baby shower gifts um, for those but, sort but of super the, sweet
1: books <laughs> is there the <laughs> other side though of you know I mean, do like I mean, do you give them to the libraries? I mean, where do book because you mentioned library oh libraries before? Like yeah. this yeah. seems. I mean, like I mean, when I was a kid, you you went to the library and you got yep. free free. You could check out a book forever, and you know, again, 110 percent support to libraries and teachers. Give yep. them more money. Tax me, I'll Always. pay it. It's fine. Yep. Um, yep. Book fairs, which is a mm-hmm. totally different business yep. model, I'm assuming. Um, yep. but do those are, when you're doing a print run of yeah. you know, the bu- books you have coming out, what is your print run Yep. to, to, to give it so numbers in there? L-
0: libraries, I mean, gosh, if you want to find the sort of secret weapon of, of the book industry and really like the country overall, it's librarians. So we count so much on for, for specific books. I mean, a book that does really, really well is a book that is bought by libraries for all of their collections. Let's even take the San Francisco Public Library. W- last year awarded the best public library system in the country, an okay. amazing public library system, just a model of excellence in every single way. They are amazing. Okay. Um, but so they, there's like around 20 branches, I think, of the San Francisco Public Library. Each of those branches is going to have, you know, one to five copies of okay. books that will be okay. checked out there so okay. that and, and you know someone's buying for the system and then those are being allocated to different branches and then of okay. course you can check out from different branches and you return sure. to different branches and all that yeah. so that's one component of it one thing that's really key to but just so- just
1: to do the math so a a, a one live one city library could conceivably get by a hundred to two hundred as you're saying and you're going to explain yeah. I'm, I'm sure if i do a really good job and i sell to 50 yeah that's a lot of books. That's a ton
0: of books. Okay, And what, you, what okay. you're what you hoping for, you're sort of also hoping for, like, the ripple effect of those so that people who read them are also going out. Oh, my gosh, this was so great. Let's buy this for ourselves. Let's buy this as a gift. You know, those are all sort of ripples. But so the sort of the amazing thing about libraries is that they, librarians, are the ones behind all of the awards that, you know, structure most of the industry. There are a couple awards that aren't awarded by librarians, but anything from the ALA, the American Library Association, those are all awarded by librarians. And all of those committees, they change every single year. And it's a huge honor for librarians to be on those committees, as you can imagine, because they might be the ones who choose Tuesday by David Wisner, or they might be the ones that chose that one from 1985 that you don't really like. Any of those awards are... Selected by the librarians from that committee from this year. And what happens after a book wins one of those awards is that libraries all over the country are watching when those awards are published and they buy all those books for their collections because it's the same ripple effect. They know that parents are going to come in and see the sticker on the book and say, oh, we got to check this out. And they know that, you know, that teachers are doing the same thing. So for school libraries, same thing. They always want to have all the award winners. So when your book wins an award, It's typically considered sort of an automatic. If it wins the Caldecott, it's like we count on it selling a hundred thousand copies. In that
1: <laughs> it's, it's so funny. The cynical part of me is melting as you explain this, because yeah. as I, as, as a parent, I'm going in and other parents have done this. Like you go look at, at preschools and elementary schools and you take the tour and you want to yep. see the library. Cause I want Johnny and Susie to be really, really smart. And if they got a bunch of old, sad, tired looking books without any of those little gold foil stamps yep. on it, this is yep. a really turd box school. And I am not totally. putting my kid in here and write totally. a check. So that, yep. that okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So
0: those awards are huge. And then the other way that like we count on library sales is this is sort of like I love when this happens because for a lot of times it's, it's voted on by kids. So state lists are also a really huge way for books to not only get successful but stay successful for many years. But schools and states will – most of them have—most states in this country have a state award um, that they give to a chosen selection of books. Usually they give it to more than one book, not just, not just one. Um, and what's cool about those books is that they are generally voted on by kids. So kids will do, like— You know, they'll read they'll have to read 10 books and they get to vote if they read all 10 books Um, or there will be a sort of school wide vote. And the winners of those books will go on to this list that is statewide. And every teacher or every parent of a fifth grader gets the fifth grade reading list and so libraries know that those books will be highly checked out because kids will be reading books off of those lists because a lot of teachers will do assignments based on them or they'll choose a book report you got to do you know six throughout the year and they all have to be from this list it's a guaranteed you know readership basically for those books so I love those books and a lot of like Chronicle's greatest successes have been books that just like get on a state list and go from there so once it's on one state list like other librarians see that it's on a state list and then it's sort of you know again another ripple
1: effect yeah quality does rise to the top it does it absolutely does
0: and especially like what's cool like I keep saying about those about those lists is like there's something inherently that kids are responding to on those books. So again, like those are major collection buys. Anything from those lists, you know, if the Texas Texas library system is gigantic. Sure. Um, that makes sense. You know, as you can imagine. And so anything that makes it onto any of the Texas state lists for any of the age levels, we can count on a pretty great buy from from those, you know, surrounding library systems.
1: Okay. So that so it, it really comes down to If if, you know, if your book is good, it's your job as the publisher to go. Okay, we have to evangelize this book exactly, exactly to people and really make sure. So, how does that um, come into play when we're talking about that deal that the author and illustrator gets, or is that the cost that the publisher uh, assumes? I mean, there there's many things we hear about. There, it's like, well, you know, all those green M and M's we charged you for. (laughs) They came out of your deal.
0: Right. So a typical publishing deal is structured an advance against royalties, um, which is like it is it can be similar to the music industry. But basically what that means is an author is paid up front and that gives them the payment basically to go write this book. Um, And there's you know, there's a gigantic spectrum of what a typical advance is, depending on the, the author's, you know, Whether they're at the beginning of their career, whether they've had bestsellers before, whether this is a competitive situation with other publishing houses, huge spectrum of advanced levels. Um, But basically what that means is until the book earns that amount of money, the author doesn't see any more money, basically. So the the publisher says, like, we think it's going to make this much. And if it exceeds that expectation, you're going to get royalties. If it doesn't exceed that expectation, we eat the cost. So it's sort of a gamble. Um, it's it. a gamble right. from the beginning. Right. And the goal, the goal is always to get to royalties because everybody benefits if we get right. to royalties. Right. The right. author gets more money, and we it means we're making more money than yeah. we put into the book, which is like ideal. Um, and as far as you know, the size of those, yeah, they can vary widely from from from. Uh, very low advances to very high advances, and some degree of expectation of the book's performance is included in that initial advance. You know, if, if we think it's going to sell, <laughs> it's so funny because it does become somewhat of a self fulfilling prophecy, or it can. So if we say this is going to be our major fall 23 lead, we think it's going to sell 100,000 copies, so we're going to pay you. Even though it's a competitive situation, we're going to pay you and we're going to be the winning publisher because we think we can make money off of this. Then it's on us to make good on that. You can't just plop a book out there and it, you know, you know, of course, there are always exceptions to every rule. But in general, you got to support it with marketing. You have to support it with co-op. So you're paying to have it rise to the top of. Whatever the Amazon page is or to have it associated with another construction book so that when people go to buy that, they see ours, too. You know, those are all upfront costs, shelf, you know, that... old school
1: things like shelf space and, expos Absolutely. and things. Like... Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Wow. Although that okay. is changing a little bit with the new Gaia BNN, which is great. Um, we we want we want indiv- individual independent bookstores to have as much say and as much um, of the industry as we possibly can, because that's where really like that's where we survive. So yes, there is a degree of expectation in the advance, but there are just as many major advances that that the author never earns back because for whatever reason it didn't meet with our expectations or tiny advances that were like, wow, we got you know, we thought this was fair. It turns out the book majorly overperformed our expectations, and so the author sees royalties almost right away and and everybody's happy
1: Right And, and you know, we you know you're at Chronicle. so Chronicle is more of a, Niche publisher, would you say, Mm -hmm. or more a a smaller press? I mean, it's not. I mean, you know, because we're we're not talking Harper Collins, and I do want to ask you about like Scholastic and what looks like, you know, you're. We've been talking about very well thought out, beautiful books, (laughs) Caldecott winning books, and Newberry Award. And then there's the six staple bound books for five ninety nine. I get at Walmart that yeah, they're books. Here's your books. I got to go.
0: Yep. Yeah, there's definitely different models. Chronicle is an independent publishing house. So that means that basically we are not owned by any shareholders. We are owned by a person, um, the McAvoy Group. um, And the McAvoy Group owns a few other publishers too. But what that means is, you know, Unlike what's called the big five, so that's like Harper, Penguin, any of the, any, basically any of the publishers most people can name, sure. those are the big five. <laughs> okay. um, and unlike them, we are not beholden to anything other than basically our own bottom line. We want basically books that make people see things differently, whether that means makes them think about things differently, it makes them re-understand what a book can look like. Um, or you know it it features a voice that has never been heard from before. So that means it's very vague and and multi. No, actually don't, I
1: think I don't think that's vague I think it's not vague to me now anymore as a parent okay. because Good. it's it's interesting like you know, I had, before we talked, we had gone to a friend's house who has a nine-year-old, and she was like, here, here are some books, here are some toys, Here's some clothes, get them out of my garage, you have a kid now, I don't <laughs> want them anymore, and you're like, great, I will take them, because it's free, because this stuff is expensive, and got two big boxes of books, and I went through the books, and most of them were, dare I say, not worth the paper they were printed mm-hmm. on, they were not... Mm-hmm. Or they were books that I, I I've never bought. I've i I've seen them in a store and I never would buy them. And you know, I'm not gonna name publishers because maybe yeah. they'll give me a job one day, but they are like <laughs> compilation books. Um, yeah. a lot of like, here's ten dinosaur books, here's fifteen books on transportation around the world. Simple books, books that kids like, books that are good, you know, you want your kid to have books. It you know, a ten dollar investment is fabulous and you should do that. Then there were books that I had dug out with it, where you talked about like Tuesday and If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Uh Um, I mean, great classic books that I didn't even know were in there. And it was like, but on a business side from an illustrator, an artist, an editor, a publisher, I must've got 50 books that I didn't pay for. Right, right. How does that fit into the business model or is that just part of how this industry works.
0: Yeah. I mean, that is part of how this industry works. Like, that is... And I think that's true, you know, whether you're talking about children's books or whether you're talking about novels. Like, I do think the rise of Little Free Libraries has shown us that there are, you know, a whole cast of books that like nobody wants to keep but everybody read and you see them like everywhere, you know? And I think that's like that is sort of, you know, that's you mean, like the Dan fate. Brown,
1: I mean Dan Brown. Like yeah. somebody like, yeah. Dan Brown? <laughs> <laughs> like
0: Dan Brown. Somebody like Dan Brown, exactly. I see a lot of John Grisham. A lot right. of a lot of eat prey love. Yeah. yeah. I think I think
1: I have a table that's being yeah. leveled out by a Dan Brown and John Grisham book that I almost read. <laughs> oh my <laughs> Nothing God. Nothing against John exactly. Grisham. I love his books. Exactly. Uh, no, totally. Dan Brown can on the like, table.
0: They're not books maybe that you want to own forever. Um, and they're maybe yeah. not books that were super meaningful to you. I think one thing that Chronicle values over other things is, you know, we we cherish our independence. We don't want to be a big five. And we would never like we I think it would be a long time before we would concede to being bought by another house. And so we know that we're never going to have the corner on the market for, um, you know, cheapness. Um We don't want to have bad paper quality, even if it costs less. So like our values in the books that we make are are sort of what we think of as being our strength. And I will say, like, I I can honestly say there's not a book on our list that I can think of that is not considered in every way. So that even if it's a book that's meant to be sold at the cash wrap at Urban Outfitters, It is a book that we genuinely think is funny and will delight people and will make people happier or better or, you know, or it's important for some reason. Like there's nothing, there's no trash on our list. And like, I don't, there's nothing like that is meant to just like make money for money's sake. Everything that we see as a money-making opportunity has some other value attached to it, whether that is, you know, humor or importance or, um... A, a really special illustrator that we want to publish, you know, for the first time. Um, and that's something that we get to decide because we're independent. And I, you know, I've never worked in one of the big five, so I don't know what that's like. But because we're not beholden to anyone other than ourselves, um, it it is a unique. And it, it, I think it does come back to everybody being on the West Coast and being really passionate about publishing. Like, I don't think that's I don't think it's a coincidence that we happen to be an independent house. And we're also in a place where there aren't any other publishers.
1: Hmm. So that, that kind of brings up, you know, two big, somewhat separate questions that I I, want to kind of wrap this up with. Mm -hmm. Um, what is your opinion on self-publishing, create space, uh, (laughs) um, the audibling of the world, all of which I have been a part of, many people are a part of, there's some great, I mean, you know, you can't say audible without somebody going, but Neil Gaiman. Oh, God. Um, I know. And but then if you actually go and seek out this work as an as somebody who is a creative trying to get work to work within this, you see a lot of self publishing stuff. It's like you ain't Joseph Conrad. Stop. Right. Right. Please don't right. write anymore. Stop. Throw your computer yep. away.
0: Yep. I Okay, think, it's really that so, bad.
1: <laughs> it's not well, just me no. being an A hole. <laughs> you
0: you are you can feel good about being an A hole in this. <laughs> In this situation. Yay, finally. What, yeah, yeah, I give you permission. So, one thing, like, I will say is that I think the question around self publishing, like, the motivation behind it to me is usually really clear. But I think it comes from a place of really wanting to be published. Mm-hmm. And that motivation has many different, you know, emotions. Because I mean, we've it. all, so
1: whether, when you do this, there's plenty of people you find out that it's a vanity press and you're like, ew. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's a, It's such a frustrating industry because there are so many success stories from people who did it for the first time and it worked Mm -hmm. or people who, you know, tried it for many, many years and then finally they got picked up. And so there's every single reality that you can attach your own reality to and say, well, I'm just that guy. Like, there's me right there. I think what is really important to consider if you are thinking about going the self-publishing route is what is your goal in publishing this book? Is it just having a physical copy of something that you're really proud of? Because if that's the case, awesome. Self-publish. Go for it. You know, give it to your friends. You know, design it yourself. Be proud of it from top to bottom. Great. But if your goal is to prove to somebody that you should be published, then self-publishing is not the right answer for you. Because what the worst thing that you could do is publish something awesome (laughs) <laughs> and then it's been self-published and no one will buy it. Like right. we had, I, I have had a, a situation where the book was really, really good. I wanted to publish it, but because it had already been self-published, it sort of had cannibalized itself before I could even do anything about oh, it. Oh, wow. And that's kind of the, that's like what you don't want to Well, no,
1: that's, to, that's, that's something, I mean, that, you know, you're, that's something to really hold, hold yeah. true and go, wait a second. It, you know, if you're that good, you should be found. You should get off your butt and pitch. But if yeah. you get something that's really good and somebody's put it out and have, oh, they, man. have they murdered it? It's devastating.
0: It? I, I think I don't think they've murdered it, but it's like a huge asterisk next to it if you oh, get wow. it as an editor. Like I remember the I remember <laughs> being so excited about this book and I remember the moment when the the agent was like, and just so you know, he did self-publish this. And I was immediately like, Oh, well. Next book, then, you know, I'll Mm. I'll work with this guy on something else because it just it's just an uncertain thing. And, you know, part of it comes from especially because we're in an independent house, we are we really stand by every dollar that we spend on a book. Um, And so that means that we're really um, we care a lot about the track record of an author or of a book. And if if there's basically data saying this book sold 200 copies as a book. And, and my finance people come to me and say, you want to put this out as a book and it's been proven to only sell 200 copies? What are you talking about? And so right. it's just – then it comes down to me being passionate and saying like, but no, it didn't have a right publishing plan and it doesn't have, you know, a design behind it. But that doesn't – that's not data. That's like, again, me as a that's subjective That's a lot leader. of
1: emotion that yes, doesn't always exactly. play out. Okay. Passion
0: doesn't al- – pa- passion, in my experience, can't always mean dollars. It can. But mm-hmm. like – but to have <laughs> to have a sort of weight that you're pulling against as a, as a self-published book is just, it, it cannot help you. So that's why I say, like, decide what you want for your book beforehand. Because if your point is to prove people wrong and say, I am a published author, I don't think that self-publishing is going to be the answer for you. And, uh,
1: yeah, there's plenty of vanity presses.
0: That'll, yes, it'll do that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. no, and that makes sense. I mean, you know, as, as as we we like to be highfalutin and talk about very intelligent things, it does come down to, you know, a paycheck. Yeah. I mean, that, this is, and I mean, this like, is a business.
0: it is a business. I know. And it's like it can be even from somebody for me in the business. It can it's very hard sometimes to separate The part of me that responds to something as a reader and the part of me that responds to something as an editor. And that those two parts of myself, like I need to be careful about distinguishing those because if you're not, you're just, you're making foolish bets. And the reason that matters, the reason that like I am able to think somewhat clinically about the books that I work on is because I think about my authors. And the worst thing you want to do is give somebody in advance that that's their flat fee for the year and they don't ever make any money again. Mm -hmm. Like, I want them to dine out on this book for the rest of their lives. That's the goal. You want them to keep making money forever and ever. And if you, you know, if you think about, like, even a high advance, let's say you pay $75,000 for a novel, that's a lot of money. But that's, like, that's a year's salary and that's about it, you know? Like, especially if this person is, you know, has a family to support. It's not, like, a, a big advance doesn't always... It's after tax it's only after paycheck rent, pay. after yeah, everything it's it's, it's a good
1: corporate job for a year if you're lucky. And exactly. You're
0: and and then you're done. And then you got to make the next book and you got to hope that it's sold, you know, that you can sell it for the same level as before. So my goal is always to get people earning royalties because it just it's then an actual thing they can count on. Um so that's sort of how I think about like the payment part of things and why it's a goal to be successful financially and not just make these beautiful objects that sell 50 copies.
1: Okay. Well, that, that kind of brings up that last question where I'm not going to pitch you my story. I promise. (laughs) But for people who, you know, want to do books, there's a million stories out there. All of them are good. I'm sure at some point, but for you as, as an, as you as the editor what are you looking for and what is the story that you hope to get? What is it you want to be publishing? What are the trends that you're seeing that go, all right, this, this is what my job entails. This is the story mm-hmm. I
0: want. Mm-hmm. You know, every time – it's funny because that's something that agents ask a lot. Is like, what are you looking for right now? And because we're not a big five house, I don't have specific topics or things that I, like – really that, like, if it's that, I say yes. But what I respond to most are things that are very specifically, authentically true to the writer. So anybody who sets out to write a book for X, for X emotion, for X holiday, for X situation, that's not as interesting to me as somebody who just tells this story that comes through them as, like, a human. Um, And I also think that's especially true with kids' books because, you know, books that are written with a purpose always wear that purpose on their sleeve. And I'm not really interested in books that are motivated only by a purpose. I'm interested in books that have a purpose because they're authentic and they tell a true story that a kid will respond to. Only specific kids respond to those type of books. But a book that inspires them because there's a kick-ass heroine at the center of it, or a book that inspires them because for the first time they're seeing something that they feel that they've never seen named before, they're seeing that in the book, that is a book that can change a kid's life. And it comes from a sense of authenticity and honesty and truth. I think like that's what makes for a really good book. So if it doesn't have those things, if it is just written for um, a moment um, or for kids in general, that's that's where I lose interest. What,
1: what are some of those books that you're really proud of that you brought that you brought to the market?
0: Oh, my gosh. One of my favorite books I ever worked on was this book called Hundred um, Percent. It's by Karen Romano Young. It came out in 2016. Um, and it's about a girl named Tink. It's her last year of elementary school, which in her school system is sixth grade. Um, and that book captured for me what it felt like to be 12 and to have all these conflicting um, f- feelings and situations and sort of these moments that were at, at the same time exciting and scary. Um, it was the, It's one of the most honest depictions of that experience that I've ever read. Um, And, and, you know, it's like the funny thing about that book was that it's like a classic middle grade coming of age story. There was nothing super special about it. There's no hook. There's no marketing angle about it. It just was really well done and very specific. You know, the kids I handed that book to, they responded to it in the same way that I did thinking of myself as a 12 year old, which is just the mark of like a truly great book.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Any any picture books that you that you've done that you're like, this this was really good and it should have done better? Any, mm, any books where you're like, eh, I kind of kind of thought that was. Not like, this is a bad book.
0: Yeah. No, yeah. Do
1: ba- you don't do bad books, we know. D- don't but, do bad books, yeah. But like, huh, I really thought that would have landed or resonated a lot yeah. better than it well, did.
0: Well, this year is a great example for that because- you know, so many of these books, their sort of lifespans depend on authors going out and touring or going to conferences and talking about them. And of course, like none of the books that came out this year had any of that because everybody's yeah. stuck at home. So there's one book for my spring list that, um, <laughs> it's one of the funniest books I've ever worked on. It's called Unstoppable and it's by, I think you'd like it. I think your kids, I think your kid would like it too. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's by Adam Rex, who also illustrates um, books. And he has a book that he authored and illustrated that came out today, actually, called On Account of the Gum. But Unstoppable came out in the spring. It's illustrated by this amazing woman, Laura Park. Um, And it's about uh, these forest animals. So there's there's this crow and a crab. And they both escape a cat. The crab escapes this cat who's trying to eat him by pinching the cat's nose. And the crow escapes by flying away. And after that happens, they look at each other and they're like, man, I always wished I had claws so I could pinch people on the nose. And the crab goes, well, I always wish I had wings so I could fly. And they look at each other and they're like, we should team up. So they <laughs> team up and they become an unstoppable team. And then they find, then they team up with a turtle who can swim. And then they team up with a bear, Steve, who can be the brute force. Um, and it's this amazing book that is about teamwork, but it comes from this feeling of like wanting to be a superhero and other people mm. kind of like, telling you that you might already be a super in your own way. But it's like, I don't know, these are themes that come up a lot explicitly in picture books, but normally they're like, they literally will tell you that you can believe in yourself or that you are a superhero. And instead of telling kids that, it models them in this very hilarious, bombastic way that culminates in... A team that includes the president and Congress all coming together to save this forest from being turned into a mall. <laughs> so it's pretty epic.
1: The great um, bleeding heart liberal way of doing things exactly. which we all need. Please remember November 3rd, go out and vote, please.
0: Go out and uh, vote.
1: Yeah. No. It's but, great. Okay, that that and and that one, that one should do pretty well.
0: I it should, you know, and I think it will, because people know Adam, the author the Mm -hmm. author's name, and he'll be out in the world um, and and supporting a future book. So I think they'll come back and buy it. But that's another like, that's a great example of a book also that is a really fun read aloud, because every time they team up with a new animal, they say unstoppable. And it's a great like moment in a classroom when you can have all the kids say unstoppable together, that of course, like, because we're not all together, we can't do it. So it's like, you know, it's one of those books that's just a sad story because of covid along with every other sad covid story
1: right right but no i, you know, I i'm pulling it up as, as we're talking you know it yeah. does it is a you know it is a very well done book you're like yeah. okay it, it, yeah. as, when you look you know there's that like, there's kids illustration there's 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 editorial there's there's whimsical that word that gets thrown around ad nauseum um, yeah. but it's like yeah this really yeah you know, it's like oh yeah i may have to break down and buy a book but, oh, good. but it, it, it does Go make sense it. that uh um that, that would be a a book that you guys would publish because it does it it, it cool. does look like a really fun, cute story. It is fun. Um, and it's
0: also like if you buy it or if you're you know if your listeners know it, it um it's a great model for how to use page turns. Okay. Um and it's a longer book too. I think it's fifty six pages. Um it is a long and book, each yeah. Each of those, yeah, a, t- a typical picture book is 32 pages, um, and each of those pages we really needed. So we actually expanded the page count from the beginning because it just, the way, the the pacing of the illustrations, particularly in the beginning, it really relied on on more to happen, more frames in the film, really, than than we had room for with the standard page count. So we added pages to that.
1: I can't cool. see why this was published, because I'm yeah. looking at it going, oh, wow, that is a very well done design <laughs> work. Okay, all right. Yeah. A lot of, a lot cool. of, you know, action, a lot of wide establishing, a lot yeah. of, a lot of, uh, good yes, uh, feelings. Exactly. Like, yeah. I could yeah. see that if I have to read this aloud or read it yeah. in a lap, it, it yes. it's going to play.
0: It does. And, Which, and one thing you can look at, too, um, speaking of animation, I don't think Laura did any animation, but she does do a lot of work on graphic novels. And so there is sort of like there's little kind of speech call outs mm, in this. You can yeah. see that she and especially the way each sort of some of the pages in the beginning are structured. You can see that she, you know, is is uh, somebody who knows what she's doing as far as sort of visual um, narrative movement.
1: Yeah, this is it. is a lovely little book. So I'm gonna, we're going to have to wrap it up because we can spend yep. all day, you know, poo-pooing on people and books we don't like and talking about <laughs> wonderful things. So just to wrap it up, what is the number one thing that you as an editor want people to do before they throw this manuscript at you?
0: Mm. What's yep. that
1: one thing you really want people to think about?
0: I want you to do two things. One... Read it out loud to kids that you don't know. So not your kids, not your nephews, but go volunteer for a library story time. There's a great national tutoring program called 826 National that has branches everywhere. Boys and girls clubs, you can find a place to volunteer or on Zoom. Like Now that everything's virtual, I'm sure there are many volunteer virtual story times that you can take a look at. Ideally, this happens in person, honestly, because you really want the minute by minute reactions to things. Um, So that's one thing. And then once you have done that and you learn that kids are not laughing at certain jokes but are laughing at certain jokes and you adjust your manuscript or your book accordingly, then I want you to hand over that book to somebody, a friend, a teacher, a librarian who's never read it before and have them read it to a bunch of kids and see what happens there. And like, watch what happens. Watch where those laughs come in. Take notes on the reaction if you can, um, because what you're doing when you write a picture book, or you know, write and illustrate a picture book, you're essentially creating a script that you're handing out to every parent, every teacher, every librarian to act out. <laughs> It's a huge job right. that you're doing because you're never gonna get to be the one reading it. One percent of the time, maybe will be right. you reading it, right? Yeah. So, and sure. and you have no control over over how other people are gonna read it. So you gotta make it perfect according to somebody else, which is a really hard thing to let go of for people. But like you it's funny to to walk in on somebody reading a book that you've worked on or that you've written yourself because you'll be like, that's not how that voice sounds, or that's not, you know, Miss Frizzle's voice, because you have it a very specific way in your head. But the ultimate test is whether you can hand it to somebody else who's never seen it before and they don't stumble over any lines. They get the laughs where the laughs are supposed to come in. The kids are riveted. They aren't requesting you to turn the page before you want them to be requesting you to turn the page. Like that's the sort of ultimate test. It is more like a script that you're giving them than, than, you know, a map.
1: I, I, you know, I think just to distill that down, I think something you just said is, is, is shocking that no, that I've never (laughs) thought of it. It's like, you're never going to read this out loud ever again once you sign the contract. So get over it.
0: Yeah, it's well, you anymore. and and you know it's not it isn't yours, yours anymore. anymore. And if you get to read it aloud, you might get you might go on tour, you might do school visits, you might read it, you know, to librarian panels or whatever, and that's great. But you're not going to be in the homes with the kids reading it night after night. You're not going to be in the classroom sitting on the square of rug on the circle with the kids getting reactions, and so. The more of those real-time, authentic experiences with your book you can observe, the better. It will teach you so much about the way the book actually functions. Um, And there's there's no, really, there's no replacing that. If you have done that before, if you've done that before, you submit the book and you say, I've read this to five classrooms of kids, and I've observed five other classrooms of kids have it read to them. And so I know it works. I would respond to that as an editor. I've never seen anybody do that in my life. So mm. it would be shocking if it did. And some of them have, some of them don't tell me and they've already yeah, done sure, that work. Sure, you know. but, no, but, that, but like yeah. that is a that is the one thing in a cover letter that I'd be like, huh, okay, I'll take a look at this. Other than that, I'm just going to read the manuscript because there's Man. no – like there, a cover letter is as good as you are at writing cover letters. It has really right. nothing to do with right. the book itself. <laughs> well, okay,
1: that, that – Okay, that is a lot. I hope people take a lot of notes, and I will not pitch you my terrible story idea because there's a lot (laughs) lot of work to do, which is really heartbreaking, but I will.
0: Don't pitch it yet.
1: We'll pitch pitch it Go fix
0: it, and then we'll talk. I
1: I will go fix it. All right, Taylor Norman from Chronicle Books. Thank you so much. This has been great. And I hope everybody listening to this uh, inundates you with extremely well thought out and prepared manuscripts going forward.
0: I hope so, too. I will look forward to that. And thank you so much, Bobby. And thank you to all of your listeners for their interest. It's really cool to find a community of people that um, care about this stuff, because that's how we make really good books and wonderful art. So thank you so much.
1: So there you have it. Everything you absolutely need to know about publishing your children's book. I hope that's given you some good ideas. I hope that has given you the desire to write your story, illustrate your story, and talk to people and collaborate on creating a children's book. Because if you've never really sat down and read a children's book, if you don't have kids, a children's book really is something that is so precious to a child. Think back to some of the books you had and how near and dear they are to your heart. I still remember titles like The Gorilla Did It, and of course Green Eggs and Ham, and one of my favorites, Hop on Pop. So if you have the opportunity or the desire to create a children's book, please do it because you are creating literature. It's not just a funny book of pictures, it is literature. And if illustration is a career you're interested in, Be aware that employers are always on the hunt for the next generation of talented and skilled creative professionals. And here at Academy of Art University, you will get those work-ready skills that employers want. You can study on site in downtown San Francisco, and of course, anywhere in the world right now with our online programs. To request info about our 40 plus areas of study in art and design, including illustration, game development, UX design, and more, visit our website at academyart.edu slash creative mind. Hey, hit that subscribe button before you leave, and thanks for listening.